Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Well, recent developments in AI have been interesting. I am sure I will do many more podcasts on this topic, but um, for the moment, some people have asked whether GPT-4 and its rapid adoption have changed my views at all about AI and AI risk. As some of you know, I did a TED Talk on the topic of artificial general intelligence in 2016. And that's available on YouTube and elsewhere, presumably. And nothing has really changed about my concern for AGI and alignment, artificial general intelligence, and the problem of creating it such that it is aligned with our interests. It's probably a worse problem now than I thought it was. Because the main change here is that the suddenness with which AI has improved and the way in which we have blown past all of the landmarks that AI safety people have carefully erected, that has alarmed me and many other people. Because in all my conversations with people like Nick Bostrom and Max Tegmark and Eliezer Yudkowsky and Stuart Russell, it was more or less an explicit expectation that as we cross the final yards into the end zone of human-level intelligence, even under conditions of an arms race, which are not at all ideal for solving the alignment problem, but even in that case, there would be a degree of caution that would sober everyone up. And so, for instance, the most powerful AI models wouldn't be connected to the Internet, or so it was thought. And they obviously wouldn't have APIs. They wouldn't be put into the hands of millions of people at the outset. But with GPT-4, we've blown past all of that. And so now it's pretty clear that we're developing our most powerful AI more or less in the wild without fully understanding the implications. So in my view, this does nothing to suggest that we're better placed to solve the alignment problem. And that problem seems to me to be as big as ever. And it has also magnified the near-term risk of things going haywire due to unintended consequences and potential malicious uses of narrow AI. With GTP-4, it's almost like we've done our first above-ground nuclear test, and we've seen the flash of very impressive AI. And now many of us are just waiting for the blast wave of hoaxes and lies to knock everything over. Now, I hope I'm wrong about this, but I'm half expecting the internet to be eventually inundated by fake information, by lies and half-truths, to a degree that could render it totally unusable. I mean, just imagine not being able to trust the authenticity of most photos and videos and audio and text. I mean, imagine what the internet becomes when AI-generated fan fiction crowds out everything else. Then imagine the cultic entanglement with all this misinformation on the part of billions of people, globally. It seems like it could be ivermectin and adrenochrome and dogecoin and catfishing scams and ransomware and who knows what else for as far as the eye can see. And even the best-case scenario could still look totally uncanny. I mean, let's say we solve the misinformation problem, though how we're going to do that is anybody's guess. But even if we did, what will people want 
when all valid information can be produced by machine. I mean, all art and science and philosophy, when even the smartest and most creative people can be taken out of the loop, what will we want then? I mean, for some things, I think we just want results. I don't care where the cure for cancer comes from. I just want it, right? So there's no future in artisanal oncology. Just give us the winning algorithm. But what about nonfiction writing? If you just want the answer to a specific question, I think AI will be fine. If you ask ChatGPT to tell you the causes of World War II, it does a pretty good job. But this will never substitute for reading Churchill, provided you care to know how the world looked to Churchill himself, and not to some credible simulacrum of Churchill. So I don't think anyone knows how all of this is going to transform our relationship to information. But what I'm experiencing personally now is a greater desire to make contact with the real world, I mean, to see my friends in person, to travel, to be out in nature, to just take a walk. And it may sound self-serving to say this, but podcasts and audiobooks are becoming more and more important for this. I still spend a tremendous amount of time in front of a screen and reading physical books, but I now spend almost as much time listening to audio because it's the difference between being stuck at my desk and taking a three-hour walk or a hike. And being able to do that and still call it work is just such an amazing have-your-cake-and-eat-it-too experience. And while all of this is still being enabled by a smartphone, the effect on my life is quite different from being married to one's phone for other reasons. Listening to audio really is different than endlessly checking email or Slack or Twitter or something else that is fragmenting your attention. Anyway, it's pretty clear we're witnessing an AI arms race and gold rush, and that things are about to get very interesting. And it seems quite reasonable to worry that the landscape of incentives is such that we might wind up someplace truly undesirable. In fact, someplace that actually no one wants to be. And we might arrive there despite everyone wanting to avoid such an outcome. So there's a lot to figure out, and uh, I am sure I will do a few more podcasts on this topic before I'm replaced by a bot that does a far better job of it. And now for today's podcast. Today I'm speaking with Paul Bloom. Paul is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and also a professor emeritus of psychology at Yale. His research explores the psychology of morality, identity, and pleasure. And he is the recipient of many awards and honors, including most recently the million-dollar Klaus J. Jacobs Research Prize. He's written for many scientific journals, such as Nature and Science, for the New York Times, The New Yorker, The Atlantic Monthly, and elsewhere. He is the author of eight books, including Against Empathy, Just Babies, How Pleasure Works, The Sweet Spot, and his new book is Psych, The Story of the Human Mind, which we discuss in this conversation. We cover many topics here, including fiction as a window onto psychology, recent developments in AI, the tension between misinformation and free speech, the difference between bullshitting and lying, truth versus belonging, reliance on scientific authority, the limits of reductionism, 
consciousness versus intelligence, Freud, behaviorism, the unconscious mind, confabulation, the limitations of debate, language, Coco the gorilla, mental health, happiness, behavioral genetics, birth order effects, living a good life, the remembered and experiencing selves, and other topics. Anyway, it's always great to talk to Paul. And now I bring you Paul Bloom. I am here with Paul Bloom. Paul, thanks for joining me again. Great to talk to you again, Sam. I've lost count, but I, I am confident that you are my, uh, my returning champion and most frequent guest. So uh, congratulations if you, if you need yet another honor to add to, your, to the trophies it's, it's that you keep on the mantle. To, yeah, it's a funny thing to put in your CV. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to most, see that. Most... Please put it in your CV. I would like to see the reactions to that. Yeah, some, some dean's going to be scratching his yeah. head, but <laughs> I, 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 do t- I do take it as an honor. I, I, I like talking with you. Well, people love hearing from you. So um, this is not, uh, not altruism directed in, in your direction. This is pure, wise selfishness on my part. So, but you have a new book, which um, is the, uh, the nominal occasion for this conversation, and that book is Psych, The Story of the Human Mind, which we'll talk about. This is really your, um, you have produced a, essentially a, a Psych 101 course in super accessible, non-boring format for uh, the general public. So that's great, and uh, people will enjoy it. That, that's exactly, that's, that's a, a nice way of putting it. I, I, I aspire to do exactly that, which is, present the whole story of psychology, but, uh, you know, I, I, I hate reading textbooks. I couldn't bear to write one. And I tried to put it in, in a way that people could enjoy it. And, and, and also textbooks have a sort of, uh, neutrality and objectivity. And, you know, by, I, I aspire towards that. I try to tell the story in kind of a straightforward way, but I also often give myself the luxury to, to weigh in on different debates. You can't do that in a textbook. No, this is not at all textbook-like, but it does cover the full sweep of what we know or what we think we know or what we uh, are embarrassed not yet to know about the human mind. Yeah. So yeah, and, and there's a lot we don't know. I, know. I know there's some other topics we might want to touch before we jump into the book, but um, how do you feel about the state of our understanding of the human mind at this point? I, I, I guess you and I have spoken about this before, yeah. I think with re- specifically with respect to parenthood and how surprised we were to realize, even you being a developmental psychologist, how little science informed our day-to-day experience of parenting. How, how do you feel about the relevance of, of science to living a good life altogether at this point? Guardedly positive. Hmm. I, I wouldn't have written a book if I didn't feel like psychology had interesting things to tell us about questions that matter a lot. Like, uh, you know, how to give, how to live a, a life of happiness, how to, um, how much can we trust our memories? How does language work? Even, even questions which have become quite, quite urgent these days with, with the, the, the dawn of AI and whatever revolution we're now going through. I think psychology has a lot to say about it. On the other hand, I try to be honest in the book. We've, we've, our, a lot of our findings are not as robust as we thought they were. And I still believe, and I don't know who's, who said it, for, maybe Chomsky said this uh, very, which is that you could learn a lot more from a good novel or a good mm-hmm. TV series or a good movie from a psychology textbook. If somebody was going to say, what's a marriage like? What's it like to raise teenagers? What's it, what's it like to grow old? 
I wouldn't point him to a psychology textbook. I'd point him to some good novels. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I never, I, mean, I used to be a, a big reader of fiction, and then at some point things flipped, and now I'm, I got to think I'm 20 to 1 nonfiction to fiction, or, or probably worse than that. It could be 50 to 1. But in recent years, I have kind of arrived at that epiphany myself. It's just there's so much to learn about human life through fiction and you don't you it seems strange to say that because it is fiction but yeah what you're seeing is are you know the best attempts of some of the smartest and most creative people to capture the substance of human experience and it's, it's you know that some of the most compelling attempts at that are by definition what we have singled out as the most valuable forms of of literature, and I guess we could add, you know, film and television here as well. But it seems strange to say it, but it is, in some cases, our most accurate window onto, at minimum, the lives of others. Yeah, and I think a, a good writer, a good filmmaker, has insights into the lives of others, often from their own experience. And and there's something about it which is often more powerful and more transcendent than what you get through psychological research. You know, you know, you, you see a movie like, like Tar and you, you hear about, you know, you learn about artistic enterprise and about cancellation, about good and evil. Uh, the, the Banshees movie, the lovely meditation on friendship. And, you know, I don't know whether things will ever be different, whether, whether it'll be a point where I'll say, no, no, check out, check out the research, it'll tell you more. There's certainly things the research could tell you that the novelist never could. And so, Maybe it's a matter of staying in our lane. Well, what do you, th- this is a, going to be a disconcertingly large question, but what do we know about the human mind at this point? The year is 2023. If you had to distill what we know or what we think we know at this point to somebody who really knew nothing about the, yeah. the last 150 years of mind science, what do you think we know? We don't have a theory of the human mind, and I don't think we ever will. Not because of our inadequacies, but because the mind is many things. And so, in some ways, if you ask, what do we know about a human body? I have a feeling that an anatomist or a physiologist would say, well, you know, let me tell you about the heart. Let me tell you about the spleen. Let me tell you about the ankle bones. And so, we, we know a fair amount about the different components of the mind. We know, we know some surprising things about memory, surprising things about personality, language motivation, sex, and generally, so, so trying to maybe <laughs> stalling for time here or try to answer your question, mm-hmm. we know the mind is the brain. We, are, we, we don't exactly know how the brain gives rise to consciousness, but we know how the brain gives rise to intelligence. It's not so dissimilar to, to any other intelligent machine that we now possess. We know that a lot of our mental life is the product of natural selection. We know a lot of it is the product of cultural evolution. We know, and, and here, I'll, you know, I'll give a shout out to Freud. We know a lot of the most interesting stuff isn't accessible to our consciousness. Mm. We know we're often conflicted beings. We know um, emotion. We're, we, we know, and I, I, think, I think we know, a lot of my colleagues would disagree with me, that we could be extraordinarily rational creatures with, with a capacity for reason and imagination, creativity that far exceeds anything else on the planet. But we can also be, um, be fooled. We can fool ourselves. So a lot of things like that. We've set out a nice menu of topics we can hit. So I, I think we should take those piece by piece. But um, before we do, maybe... It's, 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 honestly, 
it's honestly a problem for a book like this. You know, I'm looking forward to talking to you about this, but previously we've talked about very focused topics of my other books, like empathy or topics mm-hmm. of mutual interest, like, like the morality of AI. And this is a sprawling book. So we'll just take it wherever it goes. Yeah. Before we jump into those topics, let's talk about recent developments in AI and uh, any other thing that has caught your attention of late. Uh, you know, before we turned on the mics, we were talking about my deleting my Twitter account, which is not disconnected to what I find most interesting and, and troubling about what's happening in, with AI at the moment. And I, I did notice in your book, the one thing that it was clearly dated uh, you know, and it was dated as of, you know, in, two, two months embar- ago. Embar- embarrassingly dated, yeah. yes. Uh, but I mean, really, you could not have, you would have had to have been Nostradamus to have foreseen how quickly that particular, I think, paragraph was going to age. But, you know, AI has moved on quite a bit since you published your book. And um, how has it struck you? Yeah. Let's take I, AI I, specifically for the moment. So just to fess up, I have, I have a few paragraphs in my book where I, I sort of, dismiss statistical attempts to to model the human mind and say oh these could never work and uh, i think i think recent events got me a bit flat-footed on this mm. i i i'm kind of like to be honest about when i got thing when i get things wrong and when things surprise me and and ai uh what has happened with gpt4 and being has been a huge shock to me if you had if we you know if one of our conversations a couple of years ago you know you asked me what's going to happen when will we have a system capable of having a perfectly normal conversation, saying intelligent things. I'd say, I don't know, twenty years, fifty years, maybe never. Hmm. And yet here we are. And so I'm, I'm kind of stunned by it. Like a lot of people, and I've heard, I've heard you, you devote a few podcasts talking to people like, like my friend Gary Marcus. Like a lot of people, I'm, I'm worried about it. I don't know where I stand for people who want to sort of halt research for a period, but, but I think it's, a, it's an idea worth taking seriously. I'm, I'm not really necessarily endorsing the idea that, that it will kill us all. But, and you made the argument a while ago, if, if the odds are like 5% or 10%, that's worth taking rather seriously. And, and as a psychologist, I wonder how much the success of models like GBT for tell us about how our minds work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it might, on that last point, it might not tell us much at all or, or, or certainly need not to constitute its own form of intelligence that disrupts our lives or benefits us immensely, depending. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's a deep point. Yeah, I, I, I really think I, my answer to the question is that humans do not learn, do not achieve our intelligence in anywhere, anything like the way these large language models do. It, it bears no resemblance to the development of a child. And yet they have an intelligence of some sort. And so Maybe there's more. I mean, actually, I do think that this suggests there's more than one way to become smart. Yeah, I mean, there's a few red herrings here I think we should dispense with. One is the confusion about the importance of consciousness here and, and, and any connection uh, necessary or otherwise between consciousness and intelligence. I, we simply don't know, you know how and when consciousness emerges and whether it comes along for the ride at a certain level of complexity and a certain yeah. level of intelligence or not. But there's simply no question that we have built intelligent machines and we're continuing to build them. And they are intelligent, in a, i.e. competent, 
whether or not there is ever anything that is like to be those machines. I, I think it's an important question in its own right, but it's quite separable from whether an intelligence itself is substrate independent and whether it's you know whether it can be aligned or unaligned with human interests and and whether we might be building systems that we may one day lose control of, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just that consciousness is a completely separate question there. And it has ethical importance because if we're building machines that are conscious, then we're building machines that can suffer uh, or be made happy. And, you know, that's a, an important thing to have done or, or to avoid doing. But the more interesting case here for me is that I, I think we're in danger of just losing sight of whether the question of consciousness is even interesting anymore, because we're, we'll yeah. be in the presence of machines that are passing the Turing test perfectly. They're, they're, they're virtually doing that. They're doing that now in a text-based way. And at a certain point, they're going to seem conscious, and we're going to treat them as though they were conscious, whether or not we ever know the ground truth there. I, I agree. I, I, every word of that. The question of, of what it is to become intelligent it's kind of a bread and butter scientific question. You know, computers can do intelligent things. Brains can do intelligent things. We have some conception of how, how we could build a machine that could play chess or carry on a conversation and how our brains do that too. The question of consciousness, as you put it, is, it, is entirely independent, but also it's going to be important because, you know, there's, um, there was a guy at Google, Blake Lamone, I think. Mm who, um, who was, was working with a chatbot and, and became convinced that it was sentient. And, you know, Google, I think, put him on leave or something because he was protesting that it was now held as a slave. It should have its own rights, its own legal protection. And he came in for a lot of mockery, which a lot of it, I think, was, was unfair. But the question he struggled with is something which is going to happen more and more and more and more. We're going to build these machines. It's going to be increasingly complicated. And when, say, we have a, we, we have, we're in a situation where each of us owns one, that regularly interacts with us, has wonderful conversations with us, seemingly has empathy and compassion for us, gives us good advice. We talk to it all the time. It will be inescapable to see it as conscious. And so people will, be, will ask, is this correct? And it's of, it's of moral importance. If it's conscious, you, you, you know, it, 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 comes under, you know, it comes under the scope of what you've called a moral landscape. You can't do bad things to it. You shouldn't. And, but we have no idea how to find out. You know, and, and that's, that's going to be a deep problem. And that's a problem which is going to bite us on the ass pretty soon. The, the only thing that has changed for me since the emergence of ChatGPT and its uh, cousins is uh, that I've grown m more concerned about the near-term chaos and harms of, uh, you know, AI that, that, that falls short of, of AGI, artificial general yeah. intelligence. I just, I just think these tools are so powerful and so disorienting in and of themselves that, um, I mean, I just, when I think about turning this technology loose to produce misinformation, uh, which many people, you know, will, I, I, I mean, unless the AI becomes a perfect remedy for that sort of thing, it just seems like our information landscape is going to get so gummed up with what is essentially persuasive spam yeah. that I just don't know how we talk or think about anything in public. Ironically, what seems a step in the direction of democratizing the search for knowledge, I think will quickly 
pendulum swing into even greater gatekeeping because you know only trusted sources of information. It's like one example here is that you know if you when you think about the you know deep fakes and deep fakes of video and audio and and just images, photos becoming so persuasive that you just you simply can't tell whether this is a, a real video of you know Putin declaring uh, you know that he's launched all his yeah. missiles or not. Like only an AI could do it, and maybe an AI can't do it. I, I, I just think at a certain point we're going to declare epistemological bankruptcy and say something like, "Okay, well, if an image hasn't come from Getty Images, That's right. we can't trust that it's an actual image of anything, right?" And, and uh, you know, there'll, there'll be a hundred versions of that sort of thing. What, what you're just what you're, we're seeing is a greater siloing of information and, and a greater role for gatekeepers. I mean, it obviously could play out differently, but that's sort of what I'm expecting here because what digital information is going to be taken at face value when, again, I'm, I'm thinking like this is not years away, this is weeks or months away. Yeah. I mean, the gatekeepers themselves may be AIs. We might be envisioning the beginning of an arms race where, where people are using them to distribute you know, false news and misinformation and other people are using them to filter it out. You could imagine, and I think that the science fiction writer Neil Stevenson had a scenario like this, which we'll all have a, we'll all have a personal system that, that uses our own preferences to filter things out and try to, to separate the fakes from the originals. But I, it, it might reach a point that no matter how smart you are, how smart an, an AI is, it can't tell a fake from the original. Mm. And then you, you go back to where does it come from? Where's the imprint? And I could just see the, the, the world's going to change in that regard. I want to ask you, do you use GPT-4 or 3 or Bing in your everyday life? Not yet. You know, insofar as I have played around with it, I've been un- underwhelmed by what has come back to me. I'm, I'm overwhelmed by the prospects for manufacturing semi-persuasive disinformation uh, and also just getting confused. It's like you, you, you ask it a question and it Will confidently tell, give you an answer, and then you, when you see that some of its answers are, in fact, hallucinations, it's it's um, disconcerting to think about ever relying on it, you know, in a fully confident way. I mean, I, I got to think it's only going to get better with respect yeah. to its error rate, but it just seems that we're very close to someone being able to to ask, um, you know, ChatGPT four or let's say five. Uh, you know, write me a medical journal article in the style of JAMA about, um, you know, how dangerous mRNA vaccine technology is and uh, give me, you know, exactly 110 references. Yeah. And the better that gets, you know, it's just like you could produce, you know, fake journal articles by the ream and just populate the world with them. I just don't know the sheer scale of it, right? I mean, the fact that we might find ourselves in a world where most of what is online is fake, I just think that's possible. And I'm not sure what we're going to do about it. And you're right that somewhat paradoxically, this could force a move back to more respect, more weight, more value given to sort of trusted traditional authorities, where, you know, if you you hear about a video, you see a video, you might then have to go to the New York Times website to see if it's confirmed or not confirmed. You go back to people or, or whatever, whoever you trust. But and in some way, this is a very old problem, the problem of forging signatures and legal documents mm. and so on. 
but social media magnifies it a thousand times over. So I actually don't know if this is a change of topic or the same topic, but you did, you did leave Twitter and, and I've heard you talk about why. It seemed like your reasons for leaving Twitter were a little bit independent of what we're talking about now. Yeah, well, the, the misinformation piece was important, but it was really misinformation as applied to me. I mean, I became, you know, the trending topic of the day, and it was a distortion of what I actually said and, you know, in certain cases meant to say, because in this case, it wasn't, I wasn't speaking especially clearly. I mean, the, the reason why I left was I, I just noticed that I had reached a kind of tipping point where Twitter was obviously making my life worse, right? And it was, just, it was just unambiguous. Whatever story I could tell myself about the benefits of, you know, the, the good parts or just the necessity of staying engaged with it as a source of information, you know, kind of taking the pulse of the world moment to moment, you know, as, as I imagined I was doing, checking Twitter compulsively. It just, it was making me a worse person. In particular, it was making me see the worst of other people in a way that I was, I became convinced was a distortion of what, the way the world is. I mean, the people, people are not as bad as they were appearing to me to be on an hourly basis, you know, day after day, week after week, month after month. And really, I mean, I was on for 12 years and yeah. it was just getting worse and worse. But it, re- it did reach a, a tipping point when I, you know, Trumpistan, uh, you went berserk in response to you know, something I'd said on another podcast. And the, the, a couple of things were interesting about that. One is that it, while in, you know, red-pilled Twitter, there had been a, just a complete, you know, run on the bank of my re- reputation, right? I mean, like I, this was, you know, I was completely defenestrated yeah. in my world. And, and really in any place I care about, nothing had happened, right? And so it was strange to see, I mean, the, you know, there's this phrase, Twitter isn't real life, which I think is, can be misleading because I think, you know, Twitter can get people elected president and, and lots of things can happen. And, and, you know, if you weren't on Twitter, you didn't know they were happening for quite some time. But there is a sense in which, at least for my life, it's not real life, you know, it, or, or it became uh, unreal. And, you know, having gotten off of it, I'm just, I'm amazed at the difference in my life. And it's not just the obvious difference of I'm not hearing from 10,000 psychopaths on a daily basis or people who are effectively behaving like psychopaths. It's just my sense of what the world is has changed. Now, it could be that there's a bit of a delusion creeping in, in that, you know, I'm, I'm not in touch with certain forms of information moment to moment. But I don't know. I just, it's like a, uh, it's almost a pre-internet existence. I mean, I spent a ton of time online and in front of my computer as it is. So it's not pre-internet, but something has been stripped out of my life that was a, a digital phantom or a golem or, you know, something awful, which, um, you know, I, I just, it's staggering to me how big, it's like a, I can honestly say that getting off Twitter is one of the most important things I've done in the last huh. decade, right? So it's just, it's an obscenity to me that I'm even in a position to say that, right? Like that I, that I managed to get so confused about what I should be doing with my attention that I could affect such a comprehensive change in my life by simply deleting my Twitter account. It's just, it's staggering to me. So it seems there's, there could be two things going on regarding your interactions with people, and probably both are true. 
One is going off Twitter. You simply spend less time dealing with strangers, often malevolent or psychopathic mm. strangers. The second is something which, which I've discovered, which is sometimes you, you see somebody online and maybe they have an extreme political view. Maybe they're very you know, into Donald Trump or maybe they're just extremely woke or extremely anti-woke. And then you meet them in person and they're invariably more nuanced, complicated, yeah. kinder, yeah. more interesting, less caricatured. I'm sure there's exceptions. I'm sure there's people who, who are just, just as bad in real life or maybe worse. But, um, but there's something about the dynamic of social media that, that really does at times bring out the worst in us. I, I got to say, I was, a bit, I was a bit tempted to follow your lead, but, I, but there's two things. One thing is I don't have your status, your celebrity status. I don't have that, pro- that particular problem of being you know, dredged over mm. by, by, by crazy people. And the second thing is that I waste a lot of time on Twitter, but I do find it's often extremely informative as to what's going on in my world. Yeah, yeah. And, well, that, and I, that's, that's what kept me hooked for all those years because it, you know, I was following hundreds of smart, creative people who are constantly surfacing interesting articles or exactly. you know, paintings. or I mean, just it was, it was my newsfeed, you know. So do you, do you, do you have, I won't, I won't put you on, on, on the spot and ask. Now I know nothing. Yeah. But, no. but, but is, but is, no, I'm actually more asking, is there some character which has four followers and a little egg shape? That's you just following <laughs> no. the same people. And... No, 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 I'm really, I'm really off. I mean, I, I occasionally have had to check it for, you know, to do you know research for a podcast or just to get in touch with a specific piece of information. But no, like I, I go for weeks without looking at Twitter, the website. And it's not that I haven't lost anything because I, I, again, I was, I was seeing articles and other things discovered for me by, right. by smart people that I'm, I'm surely not discovering myself now. But it really does center on the point you just made, which is just the distorted sense of other people I, I knew I was getting, yeah. but couldn't fully correct for. Because in some cases, I, not only these aren't just strangers who I know if I met them over dinner, they'd be better than they seem to me on Twitter. These are people who I actually know and have had dinner with, but yeah. I could see what they were doing on Twitter and it was changing my opinion of them, right? It's just, you know, these are now awful human beings who I used to like over dinner, but I can't believe they're behaving this way, right? So it just, it, it, I felt like I had been enrolled in a psychological experiment that was that had gone awry, you know, probably five years ago at least. And it just took me a very long time to find reason enough to just bolt for the door. And that's, um, yeah, but I, when, when you add the, the AI component to it and the misinformation component to it, I, I'm very worried about our collective ability to have a fact-based discussion about anything. I mean, even the, even the topics I've just raised, I mean, like my claiming confidently that we have a misinformation problem is the other side of a debate which, you know, smart people are having now, which I think we just can't possibly bring to a satisfactory resolution. I mean, the other side is we've got people talking about, you know, media and, and, and social media censorship and every you know reference to misinformation or disinformation is a covert way of you know the deep state and the the odious establishment trying to suppress the populist democratic 
uh, epistemology that uh, is struggling to be born, right? Where like we just we're trying to to force the Overton window into a certain shape uh, and position, and uh, uh, make it impossible for people to talk about or think about topics that fall outside of it. So we can't even agree about whether misinformation is a thing at this point. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I was gonna say just just to go back a little bit in response to you going off Twitter, but, but Sam, you miss so much. And the, the truth is, to some extent, you do miss some things. You miss some discoveries. You miss some some very funny things, very clever things. But you you also miss stuff that you probably shouldn't be attending to in the first place. Not because it's necessarily mistaken. But because it's the outrage of the day, yeah. it's, it's people getting furious because something happened in this school in Nebraska or somebody said this and they're getting, you know, and in a few days that will go on and move to the next. An amount of mental energy, and I'm speaking personally here, that, 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 that gets caught, I get caught up in for issues which I actually have no expertise and no intrinsic interest in. But, but you know, we're, we're wired for gossip and hearing, yeah. oh my God, this person said this and now the, the world's coming to an end and everybody. It just just captivates us, and and it's 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 appealing, I think, to our worst selves. Yeah, it it also gives you the sense that you're you're supposed to form an opinion about everything, right? Especially That's if, right. when you have a big platform, you know, when you have a hundreds of thousands or millions of people following you, you know, something will happen, and you'll and you'll feel like, okay, well, this is an invitation to comment, and it's interesting not to have that space for that kind of micro commentary in my life anymore. Like I, now I have a podcast where I can decide, you know, whether I want to talk about something, but that's a very different decision than whether to, you know, retweet something or yeah. comment on it. And the time course of the decision is different. You know, lots of ephemeral things just fall away before you, you have even decided whether or not you, they were worthy of your attention or, you know, worthy to surface in, in your commentary about anything. And yeah, I mean, I was just, you know, I'm, I'm missing a lot on Twitter, no doubt, but what I, the, what I was missing when I was on Twitter were things like books, right? <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. it, was, it was becoming harder <laughs> to read books, you know? And so, uh, yeah, it's kind of the pace of, of one's response to the information one is taking in. And it's... Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely a net good. It does, it's not that it comes with zero cost, but and I recognize that people have very different experiences on Twitter or any other social media site where they happen to be. And you know, some people who are just putting out you know, happy memes are getting nothing but love back, yep. and it's, they yep. have no idea what I'm talking about. But I just, um, yeah, I'm, I'm worried that we, ha- we have built tools that we, can't, we don't know how to control, and they may in fact not be controllable by us and they're controlling us, right? They're making certain types of conversation impossible. They're making it difficult or, or impossible to solve coordination problems that we really have to solve in order to get anything important done in the world. And um, I just think we, they have created a, um, what seems like just unbridgeable divides in our politics this could have always been the case, right? And it could have, there might be analogies to the to the invention of the printing press that yeah. where it made the same kind of indelible changes in how we did things or failed to do things. But I don't know. I just think the the way in which the outrage machine has has no off button and the the pace of our engagement with 
the story of the day, the outrage of the day, and the way in which that gets memory hold because it's supplanted by a new outrage of the next day, and the way that the cycle time of those changes completely obscures long-standing problems that we just do not have the bandwidth to think about. You know, it, it really just seems like we have built information tools that we just can't use effectively. So I know a lot of people, I, I, I see what you're saying. I agree with a lot of it. I know a lot of people who are deeply concerned about exactly what you're talking about, particularly now with, with AI adding something else to the mix. And, and I share that concern. But all of the solutions that get proposed often make me a bit queasy. Mm. John Haidt suggests that the social media basically don't have a, it doesn't have a like or retweet button. You modify the structure so that, that, that you don't get a sort of amplification and piling on. Gary Marcus thinks the government should get involved mm. in, in sort of controlling the runaway flow of uh, misinformation. Robert Wright, you know, suggests, doesn't think it should be mandated, but suggests that that we should redesign social media to, to pretty much force people to eat their vegetables and, you know, get exposed to alternative use. And I don't know, where, where do you stand on all of that? Yeah, I, I, honestly, I don't have um, any kind of remedy worked out in my head. I mean, I, personally, I have just simply defected, and that makes the most sense. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to find a way of interacting with information and producing it that seems um, like it, it has real integrity, and it's getting harder to do. And, 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 it, and I just see how siloed everyone has become in their preferred echo chamber. And it's, um, you know, I, well, I don't feel that that has happened to me in any kind of comprehensive way. I can just, I, I certainly see people perceiving me on, on any given topic to have been stuck in, in some kind of bubble and take, you know, COVID uh, yeah. as a, a clear case, right? It's like, they're the people who think that COVID, the disease is uh, no big deal and, you know, or, or even a hoax. And those same people tend to think that the vaccines for COVID are just the crime of the century and going to kill yeah. millions. Uh, and then you just flip those two toggles uh, for the other half of our society. And it's, uh, is there a conversation to have between those two camps on some medium that could possibly converge on a shared set of truth claims to which everyone would, you know, in the fullness of time, give assent. There's a half a dozen other topics that come to mind that are equally polarizing. In the current environment, I'm just not sure convergence is remotely possible. Yeah. And it, to the extent this gets better, I don't really see a natural market solution. It, it, right. It's on parallel between somebody saying, oh my God, restaurants, fancy restaurants, fast food places serve, you know, food that's extremely bad for us. It's salty, it's fatty, it's, it's high calorie. It's, and so, so why don't we just, you know, create these restaurants that serve much healthier food with, you know, vegetables? Well, you could do that, but no one's going to go to them. Yeah. And similarly, you know, if you could, you could create a new social media site that does things better, that discourages exaggeration and caricature, that, that brings together people with real expertise. But <laughs> Twitter's so much more fun. Yeah, well, I, I do think the, there are some changes that I've uh, banged on about a lot on previous podcasts, which I think would make a, a huge difference. I just don't, th I don't know that it, it makes enough of a difference at this point, but I, I, do, I do think the business model to which the internet got anchored 
is largely at fault, right? So the, just the, the fact that we have to game people's attention algorithmically so as to you know, maximize ad revenue, right? That, that, that's the, the business model for so many of these sites. Yeah. That's a problem. And I, th- I do think that if people just subscribed to Twitter and uh, there were no ads and there was no anonymity and there was you know, very clear terms of service, it could be much better than it is, but again, it, it does you know, you know, suffer the analysis you just gave it, which is if, if the more you solve the problems I'm worried about, in some measure, the more boring it might get, right? Yeah. There, there, there yeah. will be an eat your vegetables component to it. But what we have now is just the privileging of misinformation and outrage by the, the algorithms. And it's yeah, there's another dimension of this which has worried me in a different way, which is so many of the algorithms are becoming—I don't know what the word is—bespoke. They're becoming geared for for us. And for me, my example is um, I, I wake up in the middle of the night, you know, have a bad habit of checking my email, hmm. and then I sometimes find myself on YouTube, and more than once, an hour has gone by where I've just—it was lost time because the YouTube algorithm knows what I like, hmm. and I like. K and Peel sketches. I like certain movie trailers. I like this and that. And, and I just lose time. And, and this is not a unique experience to me. I, you know, the, I forget his name. The guy who ran Netflix said that our, our enemy isn't other streaming services. It's sleep. It's, yeah. it's sleep. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I feel that, that the real, the world that's outside of our screens and involves the outside and other people is at a serious disadvantage relative to the algorithm-driven feed that you get from Twitter or YouTube or a million other sources. And I, I, you know, you could choose your dystopia. Some people now I think are thinking of a sort of a Skynet matrix dystopia of AI. There's another dystopia where we're all just kind of blobs with our VR things perched in front of our faces, just whittling away our lives. Yeah. Well, it's, it's definitely worth uh, stepping back and taking stock because uh, I mean, just again, personally, I, I, I as I, said i i'm i'm embarrassed at at how long it took me to recognize what twitter had become in my life and it's really you know i i was i'm by no means the worst you know casualty of the platform that i can think of i mean there are people who have much more of a twitter problem than i ever had but it's um i mean it's insane to say it but like something like 100% of the truly bad things that have happened in my life in the last 10 years have come from Twitter. Really? If I said 90%, I, 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 I'm sure I'm underestimating it. It's completely crazy. Just what a, what a malign influence it has been on my life. And it took me years to just get fed up with it because of, and to some degree, it's what you um, just noticed with respect to the YouTube algorithm. It's just the, it's the steady drip of titillating isn't quite the right word, but it's reinforcing information of some yeah. kind, right? And yeah, yeah, and the fact that you, you know, on Twitter, it, it can feel like an entirely wholesome way of satisfying your desire to be in touch with the world and, and have your curiosity slaked. Uh, I mean, for the longest time, it seems like it's that, but yeah, it's quite a change. It's... Um, well, I'm wondering what you uh, are most concerned about at this moment. And then we're going to take a turn to your, your book. But like, what, what do you actually 
thinking about, you know, whether it's a uh, you know, professional capacity or, or a personal one, what's worrying you these days? What's, uh, you know, top of mind as far as um, changes in our society that you're, uh, that you're finding um, bewildering or disconcerting? Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know where to begin. And some of it might be, you know, we're not getting any younger. There, there's yep. a common lament of the old is, oh my God, things have gone to hell. Back, back in the good old days, you know. And I think there could be, a, I think maybe to balance the complaining we've been doing, I mean, AI done right could be a, could be a godsend, could transform the world in, in, in such wonderful ways. And so much of the social media, so you, you, we have really, I think, done, done a fair job of pointing out the bad side, but, but it's rescued so many people from loneliness. People have found communities. People have found love. And putting aside the misinformation problem and addiction problem, we're social beings. And some people are not situated that they can get their social satisfaction out with actual people in the real world. So they, they, they do it online. And I think there's a satisfaction to be had for that too. I mean, to some extent, this speaks to both the positives and negatives of what we're talking about. And it goes back to your comment about all the bad things happening to you happening over, over Twitter, which is we are extremely social animals and our reputation is extremely important to us. What people think of us. I think only psychopaths say, I don't care what people think about me yeah. and mean it. I mean, basically having people say terrible things about you, lying about you is horrible, is, is horrible. And it, in some way, it's far more horrible than bodily pains or bodily damage. I mean, you know, you ask people, I don't know, would you rather the whole world think of you as a child molester or would you rather lose an arm? I think people would vote for losing an arm. Yeah. And, and, you know, so, so, and similarly, the, you know, people, people, the reputational boons and, and connecting with people and so on has this euphoric feeling for many people. And it, and it can be unhealthy or, and, and, and addictive. But I think when done properly, it could be real plus of these algorithms. It's interesting. I, this could be the way it strikes many people, or this could just be my own personal idiosyncrasy. But the, the worst thing about you know, reputational maintenance and you know, caring about what other people think, I mean, the, the, the thing that, that really w is my kryptonite is the misrepresentation of what my views actually are. Like I... I Maybe everyone cares about this to the degree I do, but I, I don't quite see it. So it's not just people saying awful things about you. Is there, you know, it's just like that. I, the truth is, if someone accurately characterizes who I am or what I've done or what, you know, what I think, and they hate me for it, yeah. that's fine, right? And so, like, you know, so let's say you know, I'm an atheist, right? And so someone hates me because I'm an atheist, right? So a fundamentalist Christian will say awful things about me because of my atheism. Okay, great. There's no problem with that. And, you know, I, 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 there's some outrageous views I, I might have. And if someone's accurately characterizing them and they think they totally, you know, holding that view totally discredits me as a person, okay, there's, I, again, no problem with that. But it's just the lying or about, you know, what I think that just gets under my skin in a way that is um, fairly uh, life deranging. And it's, and that's why I, when I see this larger problem of misinformation at scale, where you just can't figure out what is true in this blizzard of purported facts, it's, uh, 
yeah, it really worries me that things can go completely off the rails. It's, it's not related to your tremendous dislike of Trump, which of course is shared by many people, but I think there's a, a certain feature of your dislike of Trump that, that connects to your anger about the lies and the misinformation, which is Trump is, you know, notoriously, famously, undeniably a bullshitter. He's, yep. not, he's, he's not a liar. He doesn't care enough to lie. He has an utter disinterest in, in the truth. Yeah. He'll just say whatever's, whatever works for him. And if it's true, it's true. If it's false, it's false. He doesn't, he doesn't care. And there's something, and, and it seems, to, it seems like, like he, he started a trend that, that he, a lot of people, both for him and against him, have a sort of ethos that, well, it could be true. It's the sort of thing one would say, you know? Right. And, and, you know, epistemological crisis is, is, is a fancy term, but it's genuinely frightening when, when people just stop caring about the truth because you can't, you can't reason properly. You can't do politics properly. You can't do science properly. You can't do society properly. And, and I think that that's, that's the problem with, that's one of the major problems with the world we live in now. Yeah, that's a distinction that uh, you're, you're referencing courtesy of uh, Harry Frankfurt, the philosopher. Yeah. He, he wrote this very short book, just a, really an essay, but it's a, a wonderful little book uh, titled On Bullshit. And um, we've discussed him before on the podcast, but to remind people, I think it really is a, an important distinction. He makes the point in the book that the difference between a liar and a bullshitter is that a liar has to be tracking what the truth is in order to insert his lie in a calculated way in the space provided. And he's, he's observing all of the norms of, of reasoning that his, his audience is relying upon because he's, again, he's trying to lie in a way that is undetected and undetectable by logical human beings. So he's not gratuitously contradicting himself. He's not, uh, he's trying to conserve the data as much as he can. He is tracking truth and, and expectations of consistency uh, and, and every other epistemological norm uh, in order to do his nefarious work. Uh, whereas the bullshitter is just talking yeah. and just creating a mood and isn't spending any time trying to track what is true or even trying to avoid contradicting what he said five minutes ago because he just, like, it's a complete, it's complete epistemological anarchy, right? There's just, there are, there are no standards, there's no authorities, there's no hierarchies, there's no ground truth to be aware of. It's just, uh, you know, a blizzard of opinion. That's right. And we, and we have now, what Trump did to a degree that I would not have thought possible was expose that something like half of our society simply doesn't care about torrents of bullshit on the most important topics and the most trivial being spread at, you know, every hour of the day across the, the landscape with no concern for truth in sight. One way to put it is that liars respect the truth. Liars might respect the truth more no. so than somebody who reflexively is honest and never thinks about it. A liar works hard to orchestrate uh, their statements so that it appears true to people. And yeah. so really works at it, says, says I, I got to fool people. And, and a bullshitter just, <laughs> just bullshits. You know, I... I I, I have a part in my book, maybe it's, 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 the part of, it's the part of the book where I, I think I disagree with most of my colleagues, where it's about rationality. And here mm. I'm going to defend, 
I'm not going to defend bullshit, but I'm going to defend people who participate in at some level where sometimes people argue, well, those who believe or purport to believe conspiracy theories and wild views and misinformation are somehow being irrational. But unfortunately, it's not as simple as that, where what rationality is, I think, is using logic and probability and empirical facts to achieve your goals. Now, if your goal is to get things right, then we should be working Mm -hmm. to find the truth and appealing to science and working on our logic. But often for many people, the goal is to get along. And if you're in a community and, uh, I don't know, everybody there believes that, I don't know, take an old example, Barack Obama was born in Kenya and is, is not an American citizen, has no legal right to be president. And that's what everybody there believes. Well, there's not much truth to it. So if you care about truth, you're not going to believe it. But you probably want to get along with the people around you. And so you're, you're sort of in this dilemma where the world as a whole would be better if everybody tried to get things right. But as individuals in society, believing the, the common, following the common practices, believing what other people believe is actually fairly rational. Yeah, I mean, it's changing the nature of the game. I mean, like we're, you're, we're, we're equivocating on what rational means in these two contexts. But yeah, I would agree that it's like a, you know, a hierarchy of needs problem. You know, you need, you, you need not to be exiled from your community or burned as a witch more than you need to be. That's right. You need to have an intellectual integrity, uh, at least in, in this moment. But for me, that's a statement of, a kind of social pathology, right? That's a community that is not as good as it might be. It's certainly not as in touch with norms of error correction that would keep it in touch with reality in an ongoing way. And what what you're describing has much more in common with religion than it has in common with science or any other really rational enterprise. I mean, these are like assenting to certain pseudo-truths represents a kind of loyalty test. I mean, any invidious comparison we're going to make between religion and politics and science, on the other hand, is going to swing on, on these kinds of distinctions. I mean, just the difference between wishful thinking and uh, a host of other cognitive biases and being dispassionately guided by you know, evidence and argument. That's interesting. I, 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 I appreciate the distinction. I think of it more, though, as a continuum. So Religion is one extreme where, you know, unless you, you publicly, uh, you know, agree, assent to the claims made at one true God, they may kick you out of town or burn you at the stake. Politics, you know, is, is close to religion in that regard, where, you know, if you're a member of a political party and you're campaigning and everything, you, 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 you should believe certain things and you'll be punished if you're not. But I think even something like science, science in sort of a pure sense has, has, norms of rejecting authority and norms of skepticism throughout. But day to day, if somebody is too skeptical about claims, they're going to get kicked out of the club. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's something that I have uh, struggled to make sense of in public for audiences that seem deeply confused about what the norms are here. And it's hard to, I mean, this is really the the sense in which science is not a science, it's an art, right? It's like there is no way we can, at least I don't think there's a way we can make an algorithm of this process where we value authority and then we discount its relevance to any 
specific claim, right? So, yeah, like, you know, that's right. As you say, we overturn it routinely in science. Whenever you make a breakthrough, you're uh, very often proving some prior consensus wrong. And we know that, you know, a, a Nobel laureate in any discipline can be wrong and doesn't need to be taken seriously if he or she is wrong. And, you know, a, a lowly graduate student can be right. And the rightness or wrongness of any claim has absolutely nothing to do with the CVs or the reputations of the, of the people making those claims. And yet, as a time-saving device, we routinely rely on authority and consensus because, probabilistically, what 97% of chemists believe about the structure of a given substance is our best bet at, at understanding what that substance is by the lights of chemistry. And that remains true until a flaw in the consensus is discovered by some you know, lone genius who then overturns it. So it's a specialization problem and a time management problem. We just we, we can't help but rely on authorities because most of the time it makes perfect sense to do that. That's exactly right. A lot of cognitive neuroscientists could do excellent work, but don't fully understand some of the statistics that they're using in order to collaborate or may understand it better. May not fully understand the physics of the fMRI machine that they use, and that's fine. And you know, the graduate student who says, "I refuse to to work on the study until I understand all of this and could justify it for myself," will have a short career. You know, you got to you, yeah. you got to defer. Yeah, I mean, there's just, there's just no way to be a true polymath at this point. It, well, although ironically, AI promises to to make that increasingly possible if, in fact, you, we can outsource our thinking confidently to our robot overlords. Because I mean, <laughs> then, you, then you can, if, yeah. in, the, in the presence of you know, Chad GPT-25, if any graduate student at any point can say, all right, you know, explain this to me uh, and explain it again and get it down to 100 words and okay like the, when you think of how quickly you would be able to drill down on uh, you know to first principles on anything that interests you and you can outsource the burden of having to remember all of that stuff to the ai it's um it's possible that we could uh, you know have more uh, more of a comprehensive ownership of uh, the full set of facts that you know impinge upon any question, but still, I mean, you know, there'll there'll be a some boundary there where you're, right. you are, you are just accepting that. Uh, in this case, you're accepting that the AI is integrating all of the uh, authorities in in a way that that actually works. You know, so it's and and that's a, and that's that brings us back to the limitations of current AI. I a little while ago wrote an article where I wanted to get some good quotes from psychologists who, actually from scholars in general, who believed that the replication crisis showed psychology to be deeply flawed. Mm. And, and so I, I asked uh, GPT-3, and it came out with, with two amazing quotes, exactly what I wanted, one from Gerd Gigerenzer, one from Nassim Taleb. And I knew they were, you know, they sounded exactly in the style of those people. And, and, of, course, and of course, neither of them existed. It just, right. it just right. plucked them out of thin air. Yeah, and and these sort of hallucinations are a problem. Yeah, I, I, you know, I felt rather betrayed. Well, I felt lied <laughs> yeah. to. Get ready; it's going to get worse. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, so uh, 
When I asked you what we know about the human mind, you gave me uh, several facets of, of the answer to this sweeping question. One was evolution and its implications. Another was the brain as the, the evolved organ that is uh, producing everything we, we know as uh, the mind in our case. Another was the, uh, the insight often credited to Freud, but there have been many variants of it, yeah. that much of what goes on in us and as us that is mental is not actually conscious, right? So there's this divide, this boundary line between consciousness and what, you know, following Freud, we have learned to call the unconscious, and, and that could be misleading in a variety of ways. One of my favorite Wittgenstein quotes is, how he is, is said to have responded to this notion of Freud's, and he says, this is, I think, fairly close to verbatim, uh, imagine the difficulties we would experience if we had a language that constrained us to say that when you see nobody in the room, you say, Mr. Nobody was in the room, right? So mm -hmm. it's just, it's the reification of, yeah. of absence, right? That's the reification of, of nothing being there. In this case, we could be concerned that there's a reification of the parts of ourselves that we don't experience uh, as though as a storehouse of potentially conscious mental states. And then there's just this, I guess, related issue of reductionism and emergence, right? So the, 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 the mind and anything, any part of it we would want to discuss, you know, take an emotion or, a, or an act of cognition, is an emergent phenomenon which, when understood at the level of its you know, micro-physical constituents, seems to, um, you know, to some minds, seems to promise a, a smooth reduction to more basic facts, which are the real facts. But in other cases, that seems like a, a fool's errand, and that there, there, there's, even in the presence of perfect AI and infinite computing resources, we're never going to be talking about human-scale experience purely in terms of neurotransmitters and synaptic connections, much less atoms and, and uh, subatomic particles. So, that, that's a, let me, I'll stop yeah, on that because that, that's, that's a deep point. When I, I, I have my, I think my, my first main chapter is on the brain and I say, you know, the, the mind is the brain. I talk about that, talk about the history of that, talk about how that, you know, as best we understand how that works. But I'm very, I, I didn't spend the rest of the chapter sort of saying, a lot of people then think that, wow, so the real science is neuroscience. And in the end, we're not going to talk in terms of beliefs and desires and emotions at all. Right. It's all going to be, you know, uh, serotonin and dopamine and glial cells and alike. And that's really false. I think that the way things work is any, 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 any claim about our minds has to be compatible to physics and, and the chemistry of the brain. If the brain can't do it, we can't do it. But the levels of explanation seem to, to work at a higher level. I think we have these incredibly elegant theories of language development or, um, or disgust or political psychology, which in, don't in the end spell out in terms of neurotransmitters and neurons, but they work at a, at a higher level. And if you th if, if when people are skeptical about when neuroscientists say, no, no, you know, it really got to be at the brain level. The proper response to them is, well, the brain level is just another higher level. Surely, you, ultimately, you think your science is going to reduce to quarks 
and atoms and molecules. And he said, no, no, no. I mean, we all have, so it's not that the lower level is the best, that I think there's a room for psychology that's constrained by neuroscience, but itself sort of stands apart from it. And, and and, And the real successes in our field, you know, we could talk about them involving how memory works and uh, or why people are different in personality don't tend to appeal to brain structures outside of the banal fact that we assume it's all brain structures and then that even brings us back to ai which is the very existence of intelligent machines suggested in generalizations you make over what is it to be intelligent what is it to be able to navigate through space or parse a sentence in the end aren't spelled out over any sort of particular substrate or thing in the end, they have to be over something. They have to have some material basis. But it could be, it could be the, the wiring of a computer or it could be the, the neural networks of a brain. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess that's a controversial point in some quarters. But I, I, I don't really see it within, within the general footprint of science. I, I don't think there's, but certainly if you're talking about intelligence, I don't think there's any doubt that it is substrate independent, and therefore something like a, a functionalist picture of it, of the sort that you just gave, is, is, the, is the right one, right? I mean, like, we can do this yeah. in computers made of silicon, and we can do this in computers made of meat, and there's many other ways we could do this, and it's, it really is just the functional architecture and the, the input-output characteristics of the system that matter in the end. And... Uh, I guess the, the one thing many people would hold out for is we, we still don't know where consciousness fits into that gonna, picture. I was no, going to so. say that, and I, I don't know either. So if somebody, people make the claim that, look, running the right program could make you smart, but it's not sufficient for consciousness. You put into my MacBook Pro a sufficiently complicated uh, uh, set of algorithms. There's no way that machine is going to become conscious. To be conscious, you have to have flesh. You have to interact with the world that really does seem strange that, that does doesn't it there'd be something magical about the wetware we have in our heads i mean that just doesn't it doesn't seem right and it doesn't even seem I mean, we, we need to explain why so much of what the brain is doing seems not to be associated with consciousness yeah right? i mean that's yeah. a further mystery so, that, so the flesh can't be can't be sufficient yeah for it there's all sorts of you know unless you're sort of held with weird philosophical views most cells don't do any any have any consciousness at all the problem with these discussions is all of the views are ridiculous i find the idea that my macbook pro could be conscious and so such that tossing in the trash would be murder to be insane yeah but i also find the idea that to insist that you can't have an alien intelligence that's not that's made up of different stuff from us seems bizarrely you know bigoted i don't know so i i think these are really hard problems and in the end our intuitions are really going to get shook up if we ever make progress on this yeah, well, you and I have talked about this before in reference to um, the show Westworld, where we, we wrote yes. that New York Times op-ed about it. And if there's anything I feel like I could confidently predict here, I, I do think that we will, we will continue to make progress, barring some catastrophe. We'll just keep going. And at a certain degree of progress, we will have left the Turing test in all of its varying forms far behind us. And I think we will um, we'll just lose sight of this particular problem. And most people will lose sight or have never t- even taken stock of this particular problem, and they will just feel that they are in relationship to conscious machines because we, we will build many of these machines to, to seem that way, and we'll build other machines, whether or not they, they in fact are conscious, to seem like black boxes that 
you know, that are, have nothing going on in them. And we'll just, uh, we just won't know until, unless we independently understand the relationship between consciousness and information processing through some other means. You know, I thought of the one example, but not the other. So I've, I already thought of it in terms of once you take ChatGBT 10 and then stick it into uh, the body of what looks like a, a, a normal adult and they're talking in English and moving around, it's going to be impossible not to see it as a conscious being. The, the flip side, which you just mentioned in passing, I never thought of before, but I imagine that, that, that soon, maybe now, various tech companies will work to make things seem less conscious. Yeah. We'll try to avoid, put them in black boxes, give them funny speech patterns, make them talk like Mr. Spock, so that we don't say, oh my God, it's a conscious being, I can't use it as my, as my slave. Yeah, it, it just there are situations where you just you wouldn't want the the emotional uh, or um, you know personal contamination in your interaction with that machine, right? It's like like you can imagine. I don't know if we had the, the same AI that we were talking to in in a, a normal you know relational capacity on a, you know let's say as you know, the supercharged version of Siri. Uh, there, we f- it's great for it to simulate being a kind of human, you know, omniscient assistant. But if you're a pilot flying a plane, I don't know if you and and you have the same AI that's uh, you know ensuring that your plane doesn't crash. I don't know if you want any kind of dialogue-based uh, kind of relational experience with that. You just you just want the thing to work. You don't want right. you, don't, you don't want it to have a tone of voice, right, or, or a uh, I don't know. I just could imagine we we would there would be certain circumstances where it might even be the same AI, but we just wouldn't want to feel in relationship to it. We just want the machines to work, right? That's right. And I think I know there are people who prefer to go to ATMs and talk to bank tellers who prefer to to do automated things that they don't have to, you know, the social pressure of dealing with a person. Maybe I'm not sure if it's for better or for worse, but I don't want my ATM when I ask for two hundred dollars to ask me. Hey Paul, what are you using the money for? You know, I don't yeah, want yeah. And honestly, I mean, take take something which is going to happen more and more, which is medicine, which is I think people really would like to have something give them medical advice that they don't have to feel guilty or ashamed of. So many people lie to their doctors mm-hmm. about what about their drinking, their smoking, their habits, and so on. It's because their doctor is a person, and and they want to make a good impression. And I think. Medicine can often be improved if you have more impersonal algorithms, just like, you know, you just like you don't want your you don't want your airplane to start having a conversation with you about how it's daywind. Yeah. Well, so let's return to this split between the conscious and the unconscious and what we do with that personally and, and what we do with that in psychological science. I mean, I know it it predates Freud in a variety of ways, but Freud really propped it up for everyone to see. I, I guess let's talk about, I mean, in your book, you, you discuss what, to my eyes, seem like two antithetical wrong turns in psychology. There's Freud and his legacy, and then there's behaviorism. Yep. And um, while William James always had an enormous influence, I've always wondered why he seemed not to be as influential as Freud, you know, culturally. Because I, you know, reading him and just seeing his approach to understanding the mind, it just seemed so much more, you know, valid in the end than what Freud was up to, or even what you know the behaviorists were up to, given 
the absurdity of many of their uh, you know, basic claims. Um, so how, I, how do, I wonder, yeah, I wonder how if do you, that answer, I wonder if that point about James answers your question, which is you read the principles of psychology by William James and you're in the presence of an intelligent, thoughtful person with cool insights, hmm. saying sensible things, occasionally taking, you know, making a chancy claim. And while Freud and Skinner were in their own ways, utterly insane. And it says it may be, you know, we talked about this in the context of social media, but maybe it's the extreme claims that grab people. Yeah. I have no love for Skinner. I mean, Skinner, to me, was the leader of a weird cult that said you could do psychology without talking about mental states, just stimulus and response. And I think he's worth talking about in a psych book. I think the behaviors have made some discoveries. Operant conditioning is real. Classical conditioning is real. But um, I have more love for Freud which makes me unusual as a psychologist. Uh, a lot of people in my field sneer at him, and there's a lot to sneer at. A lot of his specific claims were just bananas. And um, I, I, I actually find it hard to think of a specific Freudian claim that isn't bananas. I mean, we, we could rank their, their banananess. My, my favorite example, which is really core of Freud, is Freud was a believer in the importance of the primal scene. And the primal mm-hmm. scene is when, when a child sees his parents making love. And that just gets everything going. That's so much consequence. Or sometimes when, when the child fantasizes about it. And, you know, it's, it's this, this wonderfully evocative claim. And not a shred of evidence in favor mm-hmm. of it. Oral stage, anal stage, edible complex, penis envy. You know, but I, I'm a fan of Freud. I think he's a wonderful writer. There are often some really clever insights in his work. He was an an amazing, controversial, difficult character. And I think his claim about the unconscious has been right. Take political psychology. A lot of people are interested in what makes a person vote for, for Biden or for Trump. And you might think, well, just ask people. You know, mm-hmm. maybe to lie to you, but ask people and hope that they're honest. But what psychologists know in their bones is people don't know. I mean, I like your narrative of why you left Twitter. But, but if I put on my psychologist hat, I'd say, maybe Sam left it for reasons he's unaware of. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly possible. But the reasons... It's, it's, it, it's almost offensive to say, isn't it? I mean, it, this, is, this is... Well, I'm offended by the reasons that I, that I believe I'm conscious of. You know, it's like... I, yes, yes. It's not that I... I, I don't think that... Um, I mean, if you, if you look at the, the things that would obscure my you know, inner judgment and make me a corrigible uh, witness to my inner life. They're self-serving interpretations of my yeah. behavior and my motives that you, you could anticipate, but I don't feel especially self-served by my reasons, right? I, I'm, I'm fairly aghast yeah. at my uh, failure to keep what was obviously my better interests in view. Right, I just, yeah. I, I just feel like the, you know, I feel like I've been wearing a dunce cap for twelve years. So it's, you know, at least in my own, maybe there's a, an even more um, humbling truth to be discovered if I could get past the the, the humbling pseudo truths I think I have in hand. But I just think no, I, it, I, I think that's fair enough. I think that it, it's too much Freud to say right. that everything it, you're you're always wrong. Yes, I'm, pr- I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not because I wanted to have sex with my mother, and this was this was the <laughs> way to, to accomplish that's that. That's right. Yeah. I, I think I think the Freudian explanations kind of earn their keep when people's own explanations do tend to be self-serving, or they tend to honestly don't know why they did that. You know, you fall in yeah. love with somebody, why that person, and why not somebody else? 
I've had many times in my life where I felt an antipathy towards something, someone, or um, this is very Freudian. I've, I've sometimes missed an appointment, hmm. which I meant to do. I just never looked at my calendar. Then I made the appointment again and missed it again. <laughs> and, and I just see Freud saying, right. saying, you know, why don't you want to see that person? And um, I, I do think for the most part, a lot of what happens to us is beneath the surface. And, and I think that that's, and Freud, even Freud, who was an egomaniac and you know, claimed credit for everything, admitted that this idea has been around for a long time. It was in Shakespeare, it was in, you know, but, but Freud took it and ran with it. And I think it's hmm. some credit. Yeah, well, the, this function that uh, I referred to earlier, or dysfunction I referred to earlier, that goes by the name of confabulation, yeah. I think does have a, 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 a Freudian kind of structure, which is, and, and this it becomes you know, very obvious under certain conditions of brain damage, uh, where, you know, in, in the purest case where you have, you know, the, the divided brain of epileptic patients who have had a, a surgery to cut the corpus callosum so as to mitigate their grand mal seizures, you have a condition where the, the left and right hemispheres, you know, literally don't know what the other is doing. Uh, and in that case, the left just starts talking and it doesn't do any reality testing with respect to the behaviors of its body controlled by the, the right hemisphere. And so it just, it, it'll reach for something and pick it up. And when asked why it did that, it will just give a reason and seemingly never say, I don't know, uh, yet it's you know reliably wrong because it just does not know what the, in this case, the right hemisphere is, is up to. No, that's right. These, these split brain patients are vivid illustrations that at least some of the time, and I don't think all the time, I think we, we can be rational. We can make rational, deliberative decisions. But at least some of the time, I try to figure out why I did something using kind of the same psychological mechanisms. I try to figure out why you did something. I don't have like mm. privileged access. Yeah, and there's there is something. It comes back to you know Frankfurt's bullshitter to some degree. I mean, the, the confabulator is the is the ultimate bullshitter. It just starts talking and likes the sound of its own voice, apparently. And the fact that you can think something and say it suffices as a claim of you know propositional knowledge yep. you and there 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 is some evidence of this in um and and uh, if i recall spinoza alleged that this was true that just merely understanding a linguistic proposition entails at least for the initial moment of understanding it a gr granting it credence right that we believe something basically we, we accept statements as true until proven otherwise and um, you know, when I, when I expose people to various propositions in fMRI experiments, we we yeah. notice this that it, people are are quicker to judge something to be true than they are to judge it to be false, even when you have statements of of uh, equal complexity, right? So you have you know two plus two equals four versus two plus two equals five. People are faster to give assent to the the former because it just it does seem like error detection is, is an additional operation yeah. that we go through. Yeah, I, 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 I love that research, actually, and it's been extended in all sorts of different ways. And it has a sort of practical implication. You often see this in politics where to say, somebody says, it is not the case that blah, 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 mm -hmm. and people walk away thinking, huh, blah, blah, blah. That's <laughs> right. what That's right. makes sense to me. You know, yeah. And that actually comes back to, I don't know, maybe all roads bring this back to, to epistemological issues. like. Maybe not everybody deserves to be, I, I think every, just about everybody deserves the right to say what they want to say, but not everybody deserves, deserves to, to be debated with.
because sometimes you don't want to, sometimes if you, if you repeatedly say it's not true that X, well, now X is up in the air and maybe you don't want to participate in that. Yeah. I mean, there are many things I've decided not to debate, you know, on this podcast or in other contexts, just because I think the normal structure of a debate does not provide the, the appropriate structure to debunk the lies and, and half-truths that are going to come spilling out of one side of the conversation. It's like it, it just, there's an it's asymmetrical uh, epistemological yeah. warfare where just you can make a mess far faster uh, than your opponent can clean it up. And depending on the topic, it's just, you know, I mean, for me, the, the ultimate case of someone you would not want to debate is somebody like Alex Jones, right, who can yes. just, just spray misinformation as, as quickly as possible. And it's of a sort where you could just, you know, it, it would take a day and a half to fact check any one of his claims, and he can make, he can, can make 10 in the span of, you know, 30 seconds. There's just no way to figure out what is true or, or half true uh, in real time in a debate of that sort. That's right. I, I, I have no doubt if I was to debate somebody who denied the Holocaust and focused on that, they would wipe the floor with me because I just know some basic historical facts, but they would say, well, what about this? Or what about yeah. this? And if I could take the time to respond to everything and read up on it and figure it, then, then, you know, I could win, but you could be really persuasive. And again, it's just, you know, the strategic use of bullshit. Yeah. So, um, what is Freud's legacy at this point? Is it, is it just, I, I completely agree with you that he was a, a wonderful writer. And I've often thought that, you know, he, he is the really the the ultimate instance of you know style over substance i mean maybe that doesn't put it quite right because some of his substance was you know he's as you say he was very insightful and yeah. interesting but it proved that if you say something well enough you could really say one crazy thing after another and still be judged to be a genius <laughs> in your lifetime yes. i i'll 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 segue into a, a, a plug for a podcast I'm part of uh, with David, our mutual friend, David Pizarro, mm. called Psych, where we, um, where we go over each chapter of, our, of the book and we talk oh, about it. So, so David um, gave a good title for our Freud one, uh, Freud, uh, Prophet or Pervert? And, um, and we kind of decided kind of both. I think as a matter of sort of fact, his legacy is he's dead in psychology departments. We just don't talk about him. Right. But oddly enough, he lives on in the humanities. Yeah. For, for yeah. better or worse. But yeah. in, in, part, in part for better, in part because of, because of his insights, because of, of his writing. But I think he's a figure now of historical interest who maybe should get a bit more credit. But it's not as if there's your average Freudian psychoanalyst is quite old. And I don't think in 20 years there's going to be many, many left. Uh, what do we know about language at this point? We know that language is universal, that language has certain universal properties. A lot, we, we know that a lot about the time course of language development, some beautiful studies, you know, showing that before they could talk, babies understand the meanings of some words, babies have figured out the rhythms of their, of their language. What we don't know is two things. We don't know how much of language is innate. Chomsky famously argued that the core aspects of language is part of the universal hardware of our mind. And I think he's mostly right, but there's a lot of debate over the extent to which this is true. And here we, again, we, 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 there's certain themes we keep going back to. 
the success of, of statistical learning mechanisms, like large, large language models, has been used as sort of a stick to be Chomsky, mm-hmm. where people say, you know, well, if, if, since these machines can pick up language based on statistics, maybe that's what people do. I'm right. skeptical, but that's one argument. And then there's a second debate over the relationship between language and thought, which is I actually take a fairly strong view, which is language plainly expresses thought. But I think the evidence for a claim that a lot of people believe, the Warfian claim, the idea that the language you learn shapes how you think. So, you know, an English speaker will think differently about the world than a Hopi speaker just by dint of learning English versus Hopi. Mm. I think it's wrong. I think that that, that is a, was a perfectly plausible empirical claim, but there's now a lot of evidence suggesting that is not the case. Well, so what would you do with the claim that if, if you don't have a word for something, you can't actually think about it in leaving aside this sort of yeah. in, indexical moments of, you know, you can point to that object and say that, uh, I don't know what that is, but I'm thinking about that. But you take a concept like irony, yeah, right? Like I mean, the irony is very difficult to define, and yet people get a sense for what it is. And w- once they have a word for it, they can they yeah. can refer to it. And, and there are many things like that where you, if you didn't have a word for it, and perhaps some languages don't, it would be easy to see how this thing could be. It might be observable in some ways. It might actually, it might still persist in some ways. And yet, if it could never be made the object of reference because there's no yeah. term for it, some door is closed, I think, or hasn't opened. I guess one, one response to that is that we're capable of learning words. And the standard way to think about this, which I think is basically right, is you already have the thought. And then someone kind of figures out a label for it. And you often see that in discussion of cross-linguistic differences. So somebody says, oh my gosh, do you know, um, I don't know, Japanese has a word for left shoes, not mm-hmm. just a right shoe, but left shoe. And you say, oh, I didn't know that. But of course, if you can now pick up the word, that means you're capable of thinking of left shoes. And so I think that the ability to learn words requires a sort of cognitive capacity to understand the thought before the word comes along. Interesting. I haven't... Uh revisited what, what I think on this topic for quite some time, but there, there's extreme versions of this where there are people who have imagined that consciousness itself is a linguistic yeah. phenomenon, right? So they therefore you know, pre-verbal babies are, you may or may not be conscious, and you know, conscious, the lights only come on once you can start chattering. That has always seemed completely insane to me. I guess, I guess it seems insane to me, and I, I figure that here we have an equivocation what consciousness means. So Presumably they're not developing, they're not denying that preverbal babies or dogs and cats for that matter could feel pleasure and pain, could be sentient in that sense. Yeah. Because I, I, don't know what, I don't know what I would do to somebody who said that, that who, who denied that. But maybe, and, and here it's more plausible, they think that language is sort of necessary to reflect upon your own thoughts, a sort of self-consciousness. And that, that might be true. Hmm. Yeah, so that could be confusion over the... Uh what we mean by consciousness, although I, I do think there are some people who, who may in fact st- still be walking among us who have asserted that they, they think that the, the lights are really completely off, even in preverbal babies. So they think that if you, if you pinch a baby's yeah. foot and it yowls, there's just noise coming out, like you jam the yeah, into a Yeah, it's a very Cartesian, you know, wow. vivisectionist view uh, of, of what is there without <laughs> language. Yeah. And, that, and that's the story of, of 
I, I'm sure it's apocryphal, but apparently um, Descartes would attend vivisections of, of living dogs. Right. And maybe to make, and he would just describe it, it's like, it's like a machine, yeah. a complicated machine making noises when you, when you clang. When you, when I would you love to know. It. That would be great to know if that were apocryphal, if we can chase that down, because I, I would think, I certainly think better of him. So, but this, it is interesting to consider whether you're actually capable of thinking something for which there is no word. And when you, when you learn the word for something, I, mean, I, I do think there are cases where to be taught the word for something is the first moment where that yeah. something is indicated to you. The existence of that something it, it can be discernible by you. I think, that's, I think that's fair enough. I think a word could call attention to a concept. And maybe repeated use of a word could form a concept. So maybe, maybe it's too simple. Say you gave a good example of irony to say you're thinking irony thoughts and somebody says, oh, that's irony. More likely you hear the word being used to refer to a variety of mm -hmm. situations. And you kind of suss out what it has in common. Yeah. What, what if, I don't remember, I don't think you referenced this in the book, but um, you discuss about, uh, to some degree, the the reality or unreality of a language in our primate cousins and, and in other uh, animals. But um, do you know what the, the final verdict, uh, if there is one, on uh, language use in, in the case of Coco the gorilla? I, yeah. I remember Penny Patterson you know, living with this gorilla for decades, uh, I think somewhere near Stanford. And, you know, it was just tailor-made for popular consumption, this idea that Coco, the, the adorable gorilla yeah. who uh, loved her pet kitten, now knew hundreds of words and was really talking to her human caretakers. Do you uh, have an opinion about what was happening there and what, we, what the field believes was happening I, there? I do have an opinion. I, I, I think the field is a bit torn about this. This, this tends to get to be surprisingly an emo surprisingly emotional issue where people mm -hmm. who are involved with training these animals, often chimpanzees or, or other, or, or great apes in general, training these animals, get very emotionally attached to them. Hmm. And in some way, their claims about the cognitive powers of these animals are used to, to, to defend keeping them alive and keeping them, them, you know, having the money sources keep coming in. So people feel very strongly. My sense is that these attempts to teach apes human language have been failures. I think that a lot of the claims you see in National Geographic videos and in popular presentations don't, don't bear up under scrutiny. And um, in some way, it's kind of, I'm not denying that other animals have communication systems. It's just that we have ours and they have theirs. And mm. expecting a, a chimp to be able to learn human language is a lot like expecting a baby to learn to who, like a chimpanzee. It doesn't, it's, it's not what you would expect. Have you ever, did you ever see the working memory tasks? performed by chimps. Oh, is this when they go faster yeah. than the human? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, it's really, uh, it's amazing and, and somehow terrifying. I mean, it, <laughs> it yeah. is. Uh, it's Planet of the Apes stuff. Yeah. You just, uh, yeah. How would you summarize our understanding of mental health at this point and, and what to do about all that ail, ails us with the tools of psychological science? You know, as, as a consumer of yeah. uh, medicine, I'm generally disappointed in what we can do to uh, solve our problems medically. And uh, I, I think this extends to mental health as well. It all seems incredibly primitive. Uh, what, what's your 
sensitive. I, th- this was my penultimate chapter, and I'm not a clinical psychologist, so I actually had a lot of help with it. I had, I had uh, four people who are, are expert clinicians look it over and give me advice and talk back and forth over it. And I think there's two morals. One moral is that, that therapy does tend to work. It's better than no therapy for just about everything. Mm. And the second moral is that it is so freaking primitive. And it's not, in some way, I'll say this, this is going to come off as, people will disagree with this, but I think it's probably true, that in the last 30 or 40 years, there's been no real progress in treatment of mental disorders. And so when you say therapy, you, you don't just mean talk therapy, you mean drugs. I mean drugs. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean drugs, yeah. medications. Yeah. So the sort of pills you would get, which, which often help if you're schizophrenic or you're depressed or you suffer from anxiety, aren't tremendously different from the ones that were invented decades ago. Yeah. Um, for various reasons, often having to do with, with drug approval and how expensive these things are, drug companies find it a lot preferable to just kind of jazz them up and give them different names than to develop whole new interventions. And the sort of talk therapy you would get if you spoke to a therapist for your depression or my depression, like in the year 2000, it's not so different than now. And I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why this is particularly a field of psycho- subfield of psychology that has not shown dramatic improvement. Mm. It might have to do with, and, and you know, to, to bolster this, I have quotes. I have a quote from Thomas Insel, who was the director of National Institutes of Mental Health. And he points out, he spent, they spent, I think, billions of dollars trying to have a more scientific way of thinking about therapy, bring in a brain, bring in genomic studies and everything like that. And he's quite candid. He said, it was all a waste. Mm. We haven't really, we haven't reduced the amount of mental illness. We haven't reduced the amount of suicide. Now, there are always, there, there are a lot of exciting, exciting things now. A lot of people are excited about psychedelics. Yeah. And, uh, and who knows? Maybe it will pan out. A lot of people are, are excited about things like uh, stimulation of the brain through, you know, pulses of electricity, mild pulse of electricity. Maybe that'll pan out. But, but right now, it works, but it's primitive. So the flip side of this, this particular coin is the question of not uh, what ails us, but uh, everything that can go right with us. And that often goes by the, the name of well-being or flourishing. Yeah. What do we know? And, and you have a, a chapter on this on, on positive psychology, which is not the most reputable side of the science for a reason. I, I mean, I, I think there probably have been some uh, you know overstatements of yeah. fact which have em- embarrassed the field, but they've as you like, point out, a share, a share of grifters. Yeah, yeah, but there's you know there's been so many problems with with replication in general that I don't know why positive psychology should suffer a special uh, opprobrium. But what what do you think about our understanding of uh, what I think you refer to in in your chapter title, the good life? Yeah, what do we know about? Uh, self-actualization, et cetera. Yeah. I think, by the way, part of the problem positive psychology is incentive system, where if you do a lot of research on, I don't know, the neuroscience of learning, there's just really, there's no route to becoming famous and, and, and writing a best-selling book and everything. So, so, you know, people just try to do their best. Mm. But if you work in happiness, everybody wants to know how to be happy. And so there's a tremendous temptation to say, I've solved it. Right. And then, you know, and then you're on Oprah. And, you know, you're a millionaire and you're very happy. And so the science suffers from that. In some way, The Good Life was, was a fun chapter to write because it built off from my previous book, The Sweet Spot, which talked about this in detail. But while The Sweet Spot 
argued for other things besides happiness. I just zoom in on happiness. And there's a few things that psychologists have found. I think some of it is common sense. Money is related to happiness. There's diminishing returns, but, you know, it should be really weird if money wasn't related to mm. happiness, given that money, you know, buys you good food and health care and a nice protection from predation, uh, relief from grueling or humiliating jobs, and so on. Social connection is related to happiness. In fact, Dan Gilbert, who's like my happiness maven, who I know mm-hmm. best, says that this is the number one thing. You know, there's a study that looked at the happiest people in the world, a huge survey study. They looked at people who ranked themselves nine or 10 on a 10-point scale of happiness, topped out in all sorts of other measures. And virtually without exception, these people say, I have people who love me. I have people who, who respect me. I have friends who will listen to me and I have friends who talk to me. Social connection seems to be really important. And then there's some surprises. So um, here's my favorite surprise. Happiness and age seems to go in a U-shaped curve mm-hmm. where, you know, it, it, you, you get kind of happy, on average happiest when you're 20 or 30. It starts to dip. When you're in your mid-50s, it's at the lowest ebb. And then it creeps up. And study after study has found that, you know, 80-year-olds, on average, it's like the happiest time of a person's life. Hmm. So I'm at the bottom of the trough here. I was going to, I was going to tell you that, that, that maybe that nowhere, nowhere to go but up. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's why I deleted Twitter because I was just that's, at the bottom of my U-shaped curve and and mistook the reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I seem to be climbing up the other side of of the curve. Yeah, at this there point, you go. So, yeah, maybe maybe in the mid fifties is when people delete Twitter. So yeah, but the that does pose a bit of a paradox. Uh, you point out in the book that because there is this correlation between happiness and health and yet yeah. if your 80s is going to be your your happiest decade i mean i guess that assumes a modicum of health but it's certainly not the kind of health you enjoyed in your 20s it's it, it's a weird paradox i mean to be fair the the final period of one's life if one succumbs to illness or something like that then it does tend to be, does tend to have a drop but it's weird because an 80 year old is on average a lot less healthy yeah. than a 50 year old and also less respect less status yeah. And so, so the data is pretty strong and it seems to show up across country after country. And it, it's not entirely clear why. I wonder whether there's an argument that David Brooks has made through several books where at a certain point in your life, your priorities shift and you're not chasing after status anymore. You're not chasing after money. You're more trying to build up your, um, what he calls your eulogy mm-hmm. values, you know, relationships, you know, if you have children, relationship with your children, your partner hobbies, reading, wisdom, whatever. And maybe the shift in priority leads to a corresponding shift in happiness. But I don't know. I, I, I think you're right to, to point it out as a puzzle. Although I, th- I think there is probably a fair bit of variation across culture with respect to the, the status of the elderly, right? So in, in America, yeah, the, I think you tend to become invisible. But in cultures where age is correlated at least with the expectation uh, that a person has some wisdom to share and, and could be valued by others, there's probably a different relationship yeah. toward the elderly. Yeah. So that's, and in those cultures, it'd be less of a puzzle, but it, apparently it still holds true in the United States where yeah. the elderly are actually not treated particularly well. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Obviously there's the genetic component to all of this, which is something like half the story for most of what we care about. And there's not much any of us can do about that at the moment, although yep. ultimately there may be. What are your thoughts about 
what behavioral genetics have done to the field of, of, of psychology? Behavioral genetics um, has told us two shocking things. One, which I think we've gotten used to, which is what you just said, which is a lot of the variance in our personality, our intelligence, our aggression, our, our kindness has to do with the genes. And so just as I could guess roughly how tall you'll be if I know the height of your biological mother and your biological father, even if they didn't raise you, I can kind of guess how introverted or um, agreeable or aggressive or risk-taking you'll be if I know these facts about your biological parents, even if they don't raise you. And determining the proportion of the variance that they explain is, is complicated and mathy, and, it, and you get different answers with different uh, measures, but 50% is a plausible way to go. That, to me, isn't the biggest surprise. The biggest surprise is about the other 50%. The other 50% is environment, things that happen to you. And everybody thinks parents. Mm, but yeah. the big finding is that parents, by dint of how they raise you, it doesn't seem to play that much of a role for all of these things that, that maybe matter most to us. It seems more like your sort of idiosyncratic life experience shapes you in ways. It, the stuff that comes from outside the family shapes you. Yeah, that's um, it's interesting from the point of view of being a parent to absorb that that fact, if indeed it is a fact. I mean, because it really, yeah. it, there, there's uh, one spends so much time living with the illusion that your parenting choices really matter or, or really will matter. But um, I, I agree. The research suggests it's not in the uh, uh, it's not in the choices the parent apart from just keeping your your kids alive and fed and treated uh, uh, moderately well. The, the difference between you know the endlessly attentive ministrations of the, right. the most compassionate and loving parent and the benign neglect of a parent whose attention is elsewhere. It's hard to see that really borne out in in uh, the the research. And and people miss this because nervous parents tend to have nervous kids and bookish parents have bookish kids and, mm. and it really is a relationship. The thing is the relationship is is genetic. Right. And so you you're the the shock always happens when you do research or you just look at adopted kids and you find how different they are from their parents. I'll I'll also say, and this is a point that I think everybody who thought about this issue seriously, starting with Judith Rich Harris, who wrote the book The Nurture Assumption, mm -hmm. which which made a lot of this, is that in some sense, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that much for the kid's personality and other traits. But of course, it matters deeply for your relationship with the kid and how happy yeah. the kid is. I mean, although, the, no, but the, the caveat there is that if, if happiness is something like 50% genetic, then yes. they're getting that too, just you know, in the blood. It's, <laughs> it's, it's true, though. I think every parent has within their control the ability to give their child a truly terrible childhood yeah one yeah. full of abuse and neglect and cruelty you, you and, need to set um, the bar again like uh, with a modicum of decency that, that yes. but it's impressive to to witness how kind of resistant to change certain sources of suffering are even in the in the happiest household right yeah. like you know kids with with anxiety disorders you know who have no certainly no good environmental reason to have any anxiety you know, they just ha obviously have a genetic propensity to that. And so, you know, they're having panic attacks, but by any objective measure, they have uh, the most fortunate situation you know, Homo sapiens has ever had, right? You know, That's right. That's right. And, and I feel that any parent who has two kids, 
sees a lot of this. So yeah. I, I, I have two sons. They're both in their 20s. They're both great kids. And, 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 but they're very different. And they were raised kind of by the same parents in the same way, but they turned out to be very different, different occupations, different temperaments, hmm. different styles of living. They get along, they get along well. But, but I see in there that I did, not, I did not do this. It was not under my control. Yeah. And, and part, part of it is a reaction. A bit. They can react, be reacting to one another too. I mean, the one, that's right. one thing that's very conspicuous about having a second child is that there hasn't been a day in that child's life that they weren't in relation to the first child. That's right. You know, they had a very different upbringing, at least for those first crucial years where the, the, the first child was an only child. And it's, um, it's hard to know how to factor that in. That's right. The, the, the study of birth order effects is fascinating. Every parent I've spoken to says, oh, my firstborn is different from my, my later borns, and almost always in the same way. And this is true for my thing, which my, my, my firstborn son is pretty much like, like me and like his mother in, in many ways. Hmm. Similar occupations, similar interests, similar style, more conservative, more, you know, both similar to us. And the second born, more of a rebel. Mm-hmm. But it turns out these large-scale studies don't find that much difference. There's a little bit of an IQ advantage for the older kid, but it's tiny. Mm-hmm. And personality differences don't seem to emerge. They seem to show up within the family. You bring your kids together, and there they are. One is the sort of rebel. The other one is, is the good kid. But then out in the world, these differences don't tend to show up. When you think about what we know of living a good life, uh, scientifically, in the aggregate, what, if anything, do you apply personally? <laughs> um, not much. Short, short of uh, enrolling in, in a CRISPR study to change your own genes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I guess one thing which is kind of stuck when I try, to, I try to take seriously is the fact that once you make a certain salary, and, and I make that certain salary, additional money plays a fairly small role in happiness. and. If you're in a situation, and often I find myself in a situation where I have to trade off money versus time with those I love, mm-hmm. I become sensitive to the fact that it's better to sort of turn away the money and build on the social contacts. Mm. I guess I also think, and this is, not, this is from thinking about it in a different way, not so much from psychological research, that I don't think happiness is the be-all and end-all. And it's not, I, I don't want to live my life trying to maximize my happiness. I also want to try to be, try to be a good person, try to do meaningful pursuits and and i'll trade happiness at least in some sort of hedonic sense i'll be willing to give up a bit of that for these other things yeah it depends on what one means by happiness that's right i I tend to use the phrase well-being and that's the most elastic variant of the concept which is you know whatever you think is is valuable in the end for whatever reason gets thrown into that same basket of of something that's going to redound to your well-being. So you're, you know, th- this explains why you're willing to you know, suffer physical discomfort in the service of some you know, other more glorious end than just pure hedonic reinforcement, because whatever, you want to get in shape, or you want to you know, you look a certain way, or you want to achieve a certain goal, or, and that's why you've set your alarm clock for five in the morning on this particular day. And that's whatever this thing that, that is that you value there is a way of translating that into some larger consideration of you know what happiness means to you or what yeah. you know flourishing means to you, uh, including I mean, the, the being in relationship with other happy people whose yeah. 
whose experience you care about, right? So you love these people, you want them to be happy, and therefore you're, you know, the, the difference between you, you being wisely selfish or selfless just evaporates because, you, you know, you're on the same team with all these people and you, you, you know, success, you have a, you, you have a common picture of, of what flourishing looks like together. I think that's nicely put. I, maybe using that language, I would say that what I've come to realize more and more is that, well, it's a mistake to equate well-being with a sort of simple-minded, selfish, hedonic pleasure. And, you know, mm. and, and I do know people, I think, who make that mistake, who, who, who fail to appreciate, you know, the value of social connectedness, the value of trying to do, to do good in the world, mm. and so on. <laughs> Again, I feel so much of this conversation, Sam, is you and me getting old. And it's like old, really? old, old, old guy talk, you know. No, might, sex, drugs, be, rock yeah. and roll, it's just yeah. a bad idea. Just seek out deeper virtues. Well, one thing that I've noticed in my life, which I, I think I probably could have connected it to the research had I thought about it, but it, it just, you know, you thought about it for me in your book, and I then noticed it. There's this, uh, a few principles of, of memory that we rely on to judge whether, you know, an experience was good or bad. And, you know, one is the, the recency effect, one is the, the primacy effect, and, and I, I think Danny Kahneman has yeah. summarized some of this as like the, the peak end rule, which is there's the maximum intensity of the, the experience, the peak, and then there's the end, which is the, the, um, the recency effect, which is the, the character of the experience at the end. And knowing that this is true of you, you can, you can make certain predictions, and, and one thing you know, I've noticed, which you kind of explicitly reference in the book, is that a vacation of a certain length is, let's say, a one a two week vacation isn't necessarily, assuming it's a it's a good vacation throughout, isn't necessarily twice as good as a one week vacation. I mean, it's not purely the the area under the curve of yeah. pleasure that summates into a, a rewarding experience. And certainly when you're talking about the remembering self who you can talk to after the vacation is over, who just has a kind of a global retrospective sense of whether that was worth doing, one lesson I, I take away from that, which I, I actually have noticed without really thinking much about it in recent years, is that short vacations can be immensely rewarding. Right? Like what can seem like a too short vacation to matter, like three or four days, can be as good as really any number of days, you know, after you've taken it. So that's one moral to take away. Now, Kahneman puts it a different way, and I'm curious how you think about this. So he would say, look, suppose you don't get bored. You have a one-week vacation versus a two-week vacation. The two-week vacation is twice as much happiness, mm -hmm. twice as much area under the curve, twice, two times more hedons. And from the standpoint of a life well-lived, that's enormous. That's, you have your one-week vacation, you have it over again. Now, when you think back on it, it's the same. Just like when you think back on yeah. a miserable six-hour flight, it's kind of the same as a miserable 12-hour flight because it's just, you know, you, there's duration neglect. It's just always a miserable flight. But so the question is, what do you want to maximize? Do you want to maximize your experiencing self for which got, who got twice as many heat-ons from the, the double-sized vacation? Or do you want to maximize your remembering self that's indifferent between those two? And that's a hard problem. That problem does not have, have a sort of psychological answer. Hmm. The way when you 
defend shorter vacations. You're sort of speaking on behalf of the remembered self. You, you yeah. leave in a week later, you think, I had this great vacation. And it's the same thought you would have had if it was twice as long. Yeah, I guess so there's a few other variables I think in play here. One is that there is a tension between the hedonic properties of a, of a vacation of whatever length and the trade-off of you know not getting work done or not doing yes, anything else. Right. That you, So the fact that you can navigate that trade-off by actually making it shorter and then the remembering self just simply doesn't care because it was, it was good enough. Uh, and he's, rem- right. he's remembering the same last moments and the same peak moments and the same first moment. The fact that there were fewer days uh, under the curve is fine. I-, I think that there really is, that there has to be a way of uniting, and perhaps we've talked about this before, I think there, there has to be a way of uniting these two selves in the sense that yeah. the remembering self really is just another instance of the experiencing self. It's just, it's one that has you know, sweeping implications, right? It really does, like the the stories we tell ourselves and other people and the experience we have of globally appraising our our lives and finding that appraisal satisfying, it's just a higher leverage moment with more implications than simply the next bite of chocolate ice cream one had uh, in the, uh, the pleasure experience sampling mode. So I, yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think you would even take it Often, I think we choose to experience unpleasant things that our experiencing self doesn't like. Yeah. So we can look back and say, wow, I'm the kind of person who, who did that, who, who, you know, camped in the woods for a week or, exactly, um, yeah. you know, did this grueling and unpleasant thing. Yeah. Or you just have a great story. I mean, you're glad this That's thing's right. over, but now you have <laughs> this right. story you're dining out on. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Paul, it's been great to talk to you once again, and um, we have not exhausted what is of interest in your book, and that book, again, is Psych, the Story of the Human Mind. Thanks. For, it's always fun to talk to you, Sam. Final question. What's the, um, where, where are you pointing your attention next these days? Do you have a new topic you're thinking about? I've become interested in perverse choices and mm-hmm. why we choose to do something that we know is wrong or we know is irrational. I have a TED Talk out on that that came out a couple of weeks ago. Oh, nice! And it's it's a fun topic. This 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 book was a, is a bit of a of it's a psych psych was a big project and it's a big heavy book and I'm thinking of writing kind of a more sprightlier fun book on on perversity. Oh, great, great. Well, you might uh, examine your Twitter usage under that rubric. <laughs> I will. I will. <laughs> I will um, if, if 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 I I gotta tell you if I leave Twitter, I'm on my last tweet is going to be that. Sam Harris convinced me. That's right. Yeah. Thanks, Sam. And then, bye. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Nice. It'll, it'll bring you more, more uh, anger. I, I, I won't see it. That's right. But, uh, I'll appreciate it nonetheless. Thanks again, Paul. Until next time. Thank you. <laughs>